0: Living your story right now in this moment. You know, no two stories are alike. We are all unique. We all have a different lens through which we see the world. We all have something to contribute, to share, to be. That uniqueness takes courage. It's not easy to stand in your truth. It's not easy to let yourself be vulnerable, to be really seen. To be really heard. So many of us hide. So many of us stay hidden. So many of us make the choice to step forward. To own who we are. To own our stories. To share our voice. The tide is turning. We're moving into a space of deeper vulnerability, courage, authenticity, and love. We're moving closer to greater self-love, self-acceptance, honesty, and empowerment. To get there, to get to that space, means we have to authentically share who we are. It means we have to authentically show up as our true selves. The magic is in sharing who you are. The magic is in sharing your story that's where this series comes in. Own your voice. Love yourself. Stay true to your story. Dive deep into your vulnerability. Shine in your authenticity. Once you do, there's no stopping you. Stay honest. Stay brave. Stay true to who you are. Welcome to Seek the Joy podcast, the power of storytelling.
1: Hello, I'm Philip Shepard. I'm the author of two books, Radical Wholeness and New Self, New World. And I also developed the Embodied Present Process, which is a modality I teach around the world that helps people reconnect with the intelligence of their bodies. And what I'd like to share with you today is really the story of how my story began. It's a story of a bicycle trip. And I should explain, I, I think I was born an eluthromaniac, and that's a word I made up, but what it means is someone with a mania for freedom. I'm just hypersensitive to whatever compromises my being or hems me in or diminishes me. And of course I know that anything that has that effect on me isn't working on me from the outside, but from the inside. Those limitations are part of me. They live within me. I'm also aware that many of those limitations were ones that I learned from my culture. And the way I understand a culture is that it's a story made up of Language and customs and hierarchies, myth, architecture, and taken all together, those elements communicate to us a story of what it means to be human. They tell you what is right and wrong, polite, impolite, up, down, important, dispensable, successful, or a failure. And I, as a teenager, felt the adults in my world were living a sort of fantasy. And it's a fantasy that kept them from living their innermost truth. And they were basically inviting me to join that fantasy and become successful in it. And every cell of my being fought against that. But I came to realize, of course, that I'm a product of my culture. And I would ultimately capitulate to my culture if I didn't leave it. So I did. I went to England from Canada, bought a bicycle, and headed off for Japan. The, the only real planning I did was, was a principle that, that said, if you get on the bike and keep pedaling and you're headed in the right direction, and you don't stop pedaling, you'll get there. And I was 18, and that seemed not at all unreasonable to me. When I took off, in all honesty, I didn't wholly expect to return alive. But I knew that a part of me would die if I stayed. So the thing about being on a bike is that you're wide open to the world, which is what I wanted. It's smells, it sounds, the wind and sky and rain and people. And there are so many different ways of feeling the world. Uh, On a bicycle, you're not in a capsule moving through the world, you are, you belong to it and you adapt to it. And on that bike, I went through so many ways of understanding what it means to be human. And each one of them was luminous. And each one of them was limited. And I slept outside the whole way uh, without a tent. Uh, You know, I realized, well, if, if you're in a tent, everyone knows where you are, and you don't know where anyone else is. And there was this quality that would happen as I'm traveling along on the bike and the sun is beginning to set and dusk is taking hold and I would need to find a place to sleep. And in fact, my life depended on it being a safe place to sleep. And there was an attunement or a sensitivity that clued me in or attuned me to a guidance and I really palpably felt it that way as a guidance that led me every night to a place where I could safely sleep. And I, I did spend every night outside in strange countries safely without being disturbed. The memories of that bike trip Blood me when I go back to it. You know, I, I was on the coast of Yugoslavia once, right by the Adriatic Sea, and the world was so quiet that I had to whisper into the spaciousness around me just to, just to feel the possibility of sound. I... Uh, I worked for a week on a little Arab cargo boat with a crew of three and a cargo of peanuts and potatoes. And I was uh, in the harbor of Famagusta off the coast of Cyprus. And I lived with these guys and learned so much from them. And I remember the delight of breakfast in the morning was sitting on the deck looking out over the Mediterranean, eating this breakfast of olives and bread, which was, of course, a novelty for me at the time. There was, um, there was an infinity to the sky over the great Syrian desert. No humidity in the air, and every single star, like a prick, like a pinpoint of light, and this vastness above. I I spent a night in a ghetto in Baghdad. These students from the university had met me and invited me to stay with them. And, you know, as I walked, the only thing I owned in the world was my bike, and I wholly depended on it as I walked into this ghetto, they could see I was a little concerned, and they asked me about it. And I said, well, I, w- I was a little worried about leaving my bike. And they said, oh, no, don't, don't worry about that. If if someone steals something here, we cut off his hands, which, as you can imagine, made me feel a lot better. And, and truly, in the morning when I went to my bike to uh, pick it up, it hadn't been touched. I spent a... I spent a while with a, a theater troupe in the south of India, a Kathakali troupe. And I followed them around and loved their performances, which began with the setting of the sun and ended with the rising of the sun. They went on all night long. And before the performances, um, they would gather and have a dinner, and they invited me to share dinner with them. And my plate was a palm leaf, and the food was in the middle, and and we were you know jostling and talking there are no boundaries anywhere it was just this communion of food and conversation and it's such a stark contrast to the culture in which i was raised where you have your chair and your placemat and your space and god help you if if you want the salt, you're not allowed to reach through Sally's space to get it. No, you have to say, Sally, would you please pass me the salt? And she conveys it safely through her space, and then you can receive it in your space and use it. It's, it's, it's such a contrast to the exuberant sharing that I felt with that Kath Kali troop. There were, there were times, like I would, in India, I'd fall asleep at night and, you know, just, just across the field was a village and I'd hear them singing and playing music and I'd fall asleep to all that life happening. And, and there was a time where I, I was in Japan and, and followed this little path up a hillside and found a little lean-to in the woods that someone had built and had used and I spent the night there. There were were so many things that I adapted to and learned and took into my body. And the only time in that whole trip that I suffered culture shock was when I came home. And suddenly this deeply familiar realm in which I'd grown up was bizarre and arbitrary And that that culture shock is really what I had left to find. The most difficult thing in the world is to question what is normal, to question what you've grown up with since, since infancy. So I began to question the very limitations and constrictions and constraints that lived within my body. And I asked those questions and pursued them for the next three decades. And those questions led to the writing of my two books, Radical Wholeness and New Self, New World. And those questions led to the workshops that I teach around the world. And it all all was made possible by that life or death bike trip, where if I leave, I might never come home, but if I stay, I might lose myself altogether. So there are two questions I've been invited to entertain. What have I learned about myself by sharing my story? I think what strikes me most is how deeply the memories of that bike trip 40 years ago still live within my body. I can still feel those stars over the great Syrian desert. I can smell the pine forest in Japan. I can feel the corners I turned around on my bike. It's all there, still known by my body. And the other question I've been invited to ponder is what is my biggest dream, I went through so much to find my freedom to undo the neurology of my culture, which tells me that the head should be in charge and the body is a dumb beast. And all of its, all of its values that diminish feeling and exalt reason, it took me so long to come back to my freedom of being, to, to the vibrant, attuned intelligence of my body. And so I guess my biggest dream is that I can share with as many as people as possible what I learned about that journey back to the body, a journey that began when I hopped on my bike, and took off for Japan.
2: Hey there, my name's Kelly Lynch. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, life coach, nutrition coach, and personal trainer in Connecticut. I believe so much in the power of language and storytelling because I see it at work every day as my clients transform their lives by changing the language they use to describe their experiences. This is work, though, that I could not have ever learned how to do this well if I hadn't experienced it for myself first. But before I tell my story, I'd like to advise all listeners that this is a story of trauma revolving around marital abuse and domestic violence. There will be triggers in this story, so please be mindful of your own experiences. Trauma can and does happen to any one of us. It doesn't discriminate. I'm a trained psychotherapist with over a decade of experience, and trauma still happened to me. Please know if you've experienced or if you are experiencing trauma or in an unsafe relationship, there are so many resources available, and all you need to do is ask for help. But also, please know that as much as my story begins with trauma, that's not where it ends. It pivots to joy, abundance, and empowered, epic authenticity. My story begins on September 5th, 2009, the day I married my ex-husband. I was raised in an environment to respect authority and to be compliant. Now, in some ways, that was appropriate in terms of being able to understand a flow and an order which can work really well in certain situations, but it also fostered in me the subconscious belief system of needing to stifle my voice for the sake of others. I remember walking down the aisle with my dad telling me, both jokingly and seriously, that we could turn around and run anytime I wanted. I thought I was walking towards the love of my life, so I just dismissed my dad as being silly and trying to make me laugh. What I wasn't willing to admit, however, was that my dad, along with the rest of my family, was right. I'd been dating my ex-husband for about four and a half years prior to getting married and while things hadn't been perfect I naively thought that they were okay. I knew he had a temper because when we'd argue he'd yell and occasionally break things like a mug or a glass. I dismissed those moments as oh he's angry I'll just leave him alone to calm down and everything will be fine and until we got married that was manageable. Being in my very early 20s at the time and never having been in a, re- in a relationship as serious as this one, there was a part of me that didn't know any better. And there was another part of me that didn't want to know any better. When we got married, it was like a switch flipped. It began first with him having more things to say about the people I was friends with and how much he disapproved of those relationships. Over time, I ended up distancing myself from those people and eventually ended those friendships because I thought my most important job was to be loyal to him and respect him. This also included me becoming more distanced from my family because he spoke so often of how he perceived them as disapproving of him and of our relationship. Then he began to be financially manipulative and controlling. It started with him refusing to allow me access to the checkbooks for our shared accounts, but then he'd go and engage in irresponsible spending, to the point that we ended up multiple times with over five figures of credit card debt. He would make large purchases without discussing it with me first, and when I disagreed with him, he'd often talk about how I needed to calm down about money and our financial situation because it shouldn't matter. He'd accuse me of being too frugal and that I needed to learn how to live my life in happier ways. I wasn't allowed to help manage the bills, but for our tiny family, I was expected to carry the medical benefits and to be the primary breadwinner. Over time, as my relationships with family and friends suffered and our financial situation became more and more stressful, I eventually began to develop depression and severe anxiety. After we got married, we purchased a home in a different part of our state in order to be closer to his job. I wasn't comfortable with the property we purchased because I felt it was more than what we could realistically manage at the time, but he had insisted on it. What I didn't realize in him insisting on this particular home was that it was yet another way to isolate me more from my friends and family. Once we moved into that home and were settled, significant gaslighting behavior began. Now, I honestly don't know if he realized he was gaslighting me or if he even knows what gaslighting is. Gaslighting behavior is when a person manipulates someone else psychologically into questioning their sanity. This began with him accusing me of not remembering him telling me something when he really had never told me. A good example of this would be him going out with friends or changing his work schedule and accusing me of not remembering that he had told me, even though he never had. It started out with him saying things like, you just have a terrible memory, and then evolved into, you're losing your mind, you can't remember anything. Over time, he'd also start moving things around the house And then tell me I did it, only to again accuse me of being crazy for not remembering doing something. Eventually, this strategy and tactic worked because I began to believe that I was actually losing my mind, and I feared deeply that I would end up with an early onset of dementia. With this, my depression and anxiety significantly increased. I was working in a clinic setting as a therapist at the time in a very high stress position, which also exacerbated the mental health symptoms I was experiencing. Looking back, I now realize it had gotten so bad so fast, and I didn't want to admit to myself how much I felt like a failure. So I started saying false, very distorted things to myself, such as this is what you signed up for, Cal, you just have to figure out how to make it work. All of these issues, the financial abuse, the psychological and emotional manipulation, the isolation, this all evolved over about three and a half years, and that's an important thing to Recognize because when you're in an unhealthy relationship that is abusive, this isn't something that happens overnight. We were married for a total of five years. This took a long time to evolve. In the last year and a half of our marriage, he began to get physical with me. I had gotten pregnant with our daughter in July of 2012, and just prior to getting pregnant, he had started a pattern of groping me inappropriately. I had always expressed resentment about being touched in ways I didn't like or felt comfortable with. I would tell him not to do that, and his response routinely, as he was laughing at me, would be, you're my wife, I can do what I want. And again, I'd tell myself I had to figure out how to deal with it because it's what I signed up for. This behavior also escalated over time to him throwing tantrums when I would turn his requests for sexual intimacy down, only for me to end up relenting just to make the tantrum stop because it would get so bad. It felt objectifying, minimizing to who I was as a person, and incredibly degrading. In the last six months of being married, he began to physically threaten me. There were three total incidents of him threatening my physical safety with a knife, and it was the final incident which made me decide to leave. Our daughter, who was born in February 2013, was a year and a half old at the time. The night of this final incident, I had put her to bed, and he and I were being silly together, just relaxing on the couch. Now, he was also intoxicated, as he regularly would drink at night. In goofing around, I had giggled at him at one point, which caused him to fly into a rage. At one point, while he was raging, he had become so loud that it woke our daughter up. So I'd gone into her nursery to pick her up out of her crib to soothe her, and then try to get her back to bed while he was outside trying to calm down. But when he came inside to shower and get ready for bed, he went into the bathroom grabbed multiple single boxes of bar soap, and threw them at me while I was holding our daughter. He continued to rage, to slam doors, and to scream at me and berate me, and eventually grabbed a butcher knife out of our kitchen knife block. First, he threatened to harm himself with it, but then instantly switched that threat to me, stating, I should just slit your throat instead. Ultimately, he walked around the house for close to two and a half hours with that knife while threatening me. When he finally put the knife away, he continued to berate me, and as the incident came to a close, one of the final things he said was, I should just beat you. You deserve it. He threw punches next to my head and walked away. I had never been so terrified. I truly believed I was going to die that night. Once that night was over, I disclosed the degree of abuse to my parents. They immediately helped me start to plan as I also began looking for a divorce attorney. I planned for six weeks on how to escape with my daughter until one night it finally happened. My oldest sister came to get me and she hid me and my daughter for three days from my ex-husband. I then moved in with my parents, filed for the divorce and a protective order and the divorce began over the course of the next six months. My divorce proceeded, evolved and eventually was finalized. I went through emotions of despair, fear, incredible grief, anger, more grief, anxiety and depression, and then finally hope and anticipation of positive possibility. Two months after getting divorced, the protective order against my ex-husband was lifted. I bought a home and I began the next phase of my life with my daughter. My ex-husband and I now have shared physical custody of our daughter and she lives with me. She is a healthy, happy, thriving six-year-old and has great relationships with both myself and her father as well as her extended family. My relationship with my ex-husband has also significantly evolved because I have had to learn how to co-parent with a man who once threatened my life due to the determination of the court that we would share custody. At this point, we do have a successful parenting relationship And to his credit, he has learned how to be respectful of my boundaries and the limits that I keep on the relationship with him because of what I have been through. We have learned how to navigate through an incredible amount of sharp edges that life contained, extremely transparent conversations about the impact we've mutually had on each other, and the ways that we've experienced each other both positively and negatively. Additionally, it's been an incredibly empowering experience personally to realize and then lean into my ability to navigate an ongoing parenting relationship with a man I once believed was going to kill me. This proved to me that while I may have lived through serious trauma, I don't ever need to allow trauma to define who I am and the way I choose to move through and experience the world. I've been divorced at this point for five years. In the last five years, my life has drastically and dramatically changed, all for the better. I stabilized the financial situation my ex-husband had created, I settled into my new home, and I focused on supporting my daughter as she adjusted to her new normal. I built what is now a thriving private psychotherapy practice, and I began to develop a coaching practice. I've been through both therapy and personal coaching for the purpose of bettering myself and my life. Therapy and coaching have been transformative, necessary experiences. In the process of each, I gained incredible insight about myself. I ended up in the position I was in because I had been willing to stifle my voice for the perceived benefit of someone else. But in stifling my voice, I also sacrificed my boundaries and my ability to take good care of myself. This created a snowball effect of me being willing to release relationships that matter to me, releasing my autonomy, and releasing control over my mental and physical health. In moving through therapy and life coaching, I reconnected to myself, I redefined my non-negotiables and relationships, along with redefining my terms for life, and I both found and elevated my voice and desire to take up space in this world. This... All of this brought the biggest lesson, and this is the lesson that applies to every single one of us. Resiliency and the ability to rise is within all of us. We can have experiences, positive and negative, but we do not ever have to lay down and surrender to those experiences. There is always a choice and the opportunity to rise. In sharing my story, I continue to reinforce to myself why I'm a survivor and not a victim. It is not my fault that trauma happened to me. It is, however, always my responsibility to take ownership of my behaviors and choices and to figure out what I'm going to do about that. My purpose in this world and in the gift of the life that I've been given is to teach my daughter how to rise, regardless of the obstacles placed in front of her, and to support as many women as I possibly can to do exactly the same. I specialize now in working with women who are seeking to redefine their identity by writing a new story of who they are, one which they can take full, proud ownership of and shift the way they move through the world from anxious to small to confident and empowered. It's a dream to be able to do the work I'm doing now. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt My experience of trauma pushed me to become the woman I am today because I was unwilling to back down and surrender to it. I dream of being able to support thousands of women for the rest of my career, to find that same source of strength and resiliency inside of themselves, to use their voice and to take joy in taking up space. We all have stories worth telling and I'm so grateful to each of you today who've taken time to hear mine. And I am so excited for the opportunity to one day hear yours as well.
3: Hi, I'm Mary Elle McCarthy. That's Mary with an I. I'm from a beautiful beachfront house in south of Boston halfway between Boston and Cape Cod and my story starts at least this chapter of my story starts in the spring of 1991 in the spring of 1991 I was a soon to be 40 year old high powered business I enjoyed the financial as well as cultural as well as all kinds of benefits from running my own management consulting firm i have i'm very happy to say i visited each of the contiguous 48 united states thanks to my only my management consulting firm anyway in the spring of 1991 i got my springtime sinus infection but that year There was a new symptom that was attached to that experience. It was called balance problems. I was having trouble walking, banging into walls, doing all kinds of sorts of things. So when I was on a project in, of all places, El Dorado, Arkansas, I was having problems again with my lower back. So I went to the emergency room and luckily the doctor on call was an orthopedist and checked me out orthopedically and said bone structures, everything like that was was fine. He suggested when I was back in Boston to find a neurologist uh, and take a look at what's going on with me neurologically. So I did that. In fact, I chronicled that in my first book, Journaling Power, How to Create the Happy, Healthy Life You Want to Live. It was a real interesting scenario going from specialist to doctor, to this, to that, and all that type of thing. good news was it only took four, maybe five months to get a definitive diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. I remember the doctor was a young doctor just starting his practice, and he did every test possible and was very kind and, and loving through the whole process. And in July of 1991, showed me my MRI and whew, immediately allayed my biggest concern that what I had was an inoperable brain tumor. And I said to myself, oh, it's only MS. So I, I thought, well, it must be time to get off the road. About a year and a half earlier, I found my house on the beach. That was one of my many, many goals that I've sought, set and gotten in my lifetime. I'm, I'm a big goal-setter. I think I came out of the, the womb focused and ambitious and driven and setting goals. So it was time to close up shop and enjoy my beautiful house on the beach. One of the first things I did was set a goal that, hmm, now that I'm I'm here and home and not living out of a suitcase running for airplanes all the, the time, that what I'm going to do is set up and run a profitable internet business out of my beautiful beachfront home. The internet was just, in 1991, the internet was just, as you know, coming into vogue. I thought, hmm, okay. And I always find that setting my goal, writing it down, looking at it, nurturing it every single day, sooner or later, it comes to pass. So I came came home and it was probably oh my goodness a very emotional spiritual psychologically challenging experience to be sitting down and to be be challenged at every move like how I was going to make it to the the bathroom one time and, and things like that but anyway it was a a very interesting uh experience and I had Over the years, many different MS symptoms that come and go, come and go, come and go. And normally, when an exacerbation or an episode or a symptom flare-up occurs, it normally settles down and goes away for the six weeks. Well, in I think it was around, around February 1998, I had... Uh, an experience, and it really felt like a stroke. It felt like it affected, you know, my whole right side of my body, which it did, and that became a true challenge. And I had this sneaking suspicion that this was not going to be just another four-to-six-week MS episode. This is going to be a real, true challenge. So still being... Uh, the high-powered, left brain focus-driven businesswoman, I had to have a procedure to teach myself how to write with my left hand. A hypnotherapist at a party introduced me to Julie Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. And in The Artist's Way is a procedure called Morning Pages. And each morning... First thing you sit down and you write three pages of whatever, no worries about grammar all that it's just pouring out and getting the gunk onto the page and getting the clutter out of the way, so you can reconnect with yourself and create what you have the potential in yourself to create that that given day. So I, that sounds like a good procedure to me, so I undertook that and was really having a lot of fun. I started, started hearing rhymes, and I started writing poetry. I never wrote poetry before in my life. And I'll share with you my first poem I ever wrote poem composed. I know not of, but I'll give to it a strive. Beginning's not the hardest part. It's the joy I dreads inside. And then childhood memories started coming up, and I was able to use my morning pages as an opportunity to process and remember and take a look at my past, and not to relive it, but to revisit and understand from an adult perspective, oh, that's what happened, or that's what the true circumstance was. And of course, I started to understand how we as children come into this world with everything we could possibly imagine as far as talent, creativity, imagination, you name it. So we come into this world with all of these wonders, gifts, magic, it's us. And then we get parented and teacherized and socialized and told and reinforced that the important thing is to go out in the world, take care of everybody else, uh, make sure, you know, make everybody else happy and everything, again, bottom line, everything was externally focused. Certainly, oh, self-care, self-understanding, uh, anything has to do with self. Well, the only word that we ever heard was selfish. Spending time with ourself is so selfish so it it became a, an eye opening to say the least experience this uh, morning pages this, this journaling this writing for the health of it and it became more than a physical therapy it became spiritual therapy it became emotional therapy Therapy became mental therapy, and it's like, wow, i got to keep doing this. And I did and did and did, and one of the things I remember from my childhood, uh, thanks to my morning pages and my journaling, was that I always was left-handed, and that's why I became left-handed so quickly. But the nuns in St. Bernard School changed me. Hmm. <laughs> And that was one of the many, many issues in my tissues that I uncovered. And that's why, to this day, I keep doing it and will continue to keep doing it because I keep daily finding out more and more exciting, interesting, fantastic, magical things about me. And I want to find out more. I want to find out more. And I want to find out more. Phrases and words would come up in my journal. Journaling for the health of it came up. And Create Right Now came up. And I put it together and said, that's going to be the internet business that I run out of my beautiful beachfront home. Create Right Now. Journaling for the health of it. Healing the issues in your tissues so you can grow and transform your life. And that's what i i did so i set up my uh, company about 10 years ago and i have all sorts of resources and that is what my passion my mission is to share journaling for the health of it with everyone i, I possibly can so that they can do the heavy lifting if you will the the discovery of really coming to terms with and understanding their past and putting the past where they belong, where it belongs, and then having the time, the space, the love for themselves to go out and create the world, the life, the person that they truly are and they truly want to be. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. And as I always say to everybody, just right on. What did I learn from sharing my story? I learned that I'm a very happy person. I love my life, I love myself unconditionally, and that's the biggest learning That, And it grows and grows and grows every single day. What's my biggest dream? My biggest dream is to get Bernie Sanders elected the next president of the United States so that we can all work together to make our lives better and be the the best that we can be because I believe that's our our mission in being here this time this time around this lifetime is to to do the heavy lifting, do the exploration, discover who we truly are and go out and blow everybody's mind (laughs) with it and and really help everyone else uh, heal the issues in their tissues and grow and transform their life and share all their goodness, greatness and talents with the rest of the world.
0: This is Seek the Joy Podcast, the power of storytelling. Join us, share your story. For more information and to get involved, visit SeekTheJoyPodcast.com. This series airs the third week of every month, and make sure to join us for Seek the Joy Tuesday. Until then, thank you for your honesty, thank you for your bravery, thank you for your joy. Thank you for being here, and thank you for listening.